You stand there with your arms crossed, usually on some type of platform, and you're told to just fall backwards. Now, of course, you're assuming that your friends are down there and that they will catch you. This is the point of the trust fall, after all. But you're still terrified, because falling backwards means you're falling in a direction where you can't really see. You don't fully know what's back there. I mean, you think you do, and you're hoping that you're actually going to be caught. You don't actually know. What if I'm not caught? What if I just fall through their hands and just collapse onto the floor with like a lot of speed and body weight? That doesn't sound like fun. Life is so full of these moments, these types of trust falls, and no one knows the experience of the continual act of trust falling into love more than makers, which, as you know, I consider each one of you to be. Each of us stands on the precipice of our offering into the world, something new, something tender, something so vulnerably ours. And so long as we're still making it, it's secret and safe. No one needs to know about it or see it or respond. But at some point, creativity, the relationality of making, requires us to let it go, to offer it up to the world, to let those seeds of that gift fall where they may. And that is scary as hell. If you've been listening to this show for a while or follow me on social media, you know that I go through this on a regular basis, this whirlwind of creativity of making and then the offering out and letting it go, which is usually ensued by a period of deep turtle time where I just kind of need to curl up and, and feel all my feelings about letting go of what it is that I've done. This is part of the creative cycle. It's part of the act of being a maker to learn how to lean into these moments of trust fall and to be okay with the terror of not knowing. Not knowing how it will be received, not knowing who's gonna catch it, not knowing how we are going to be caught as we leap off the edges of what we have done into the unknown of what we will become. No one has caught me more or with more love than today's guest, Felicia Morell. Felicia is an author, a certified master life coach, a former ordained pastor, and also serves the publishing industry as a freelance copy editor. Her book is called Truth Encounters. And to know Felicia is to know an encounter with truth. <laughs> she speaks the truth, but speaks it with so much kindness and so much love. I mean, as you're about to experience, she doesn't hold back at all. But the kind of truth that she speaks is the truth that transforms. And so here at the end of season two, I knew I wanted to have an honest, open and real conversation about the courage that trust falling in the act of making requires. Heads up, if you're listening around little ones, you're probably gonna wanna grab your headphones for this one. Felicia and I get very real and use all the colorful language that that the real requires. 
So with that, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with my guest Felicia Morell on episode 11 of season two, the season finale. Felicia, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, and I feel very selfish because I just said this, this feels like too much fun. And it really does. Like, this is like a, such a joy for me to have such a dear friend of mine on the show. So I want to begin by just saying thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for making my day. It's going to be so much fun to speak with you this afternoon. Such a huge honor for me. So thank you for having me. As you know, I like to begin each conversation on the show by talking about the first map that we're handed. And part of the reason why I like to do that is so that we remember that we have journeyed beyond maps before, so that if we find ourselves in a season of unknowing, we can take comfort in, in remembering like, oh yeah, I've been here before, or oh, my map has ruptured before and it wasn't the end of the world. So let's begin by, um, if you'd be willing to share the first map that you were handed to make sense of your world and your reality. Whew. You know, I, I honestly, I would say there wasn't a map, but then even not being able to identify the map is in itself a kind of a map. Um, and I would say that Bree, because my reality was like, you weren't going anywhere, right? I was born in Washington, DC, but I actually grew up in like from a little girl, um, as early as five, my earliest remembrance of being in this place in a deeply segregated rural North Carolina town. Okay. And so in this county that I grew up, everyone stayed. I mean, hardly anyone left our small town or our family unit. And in that way, my grandmother was actually kind of an enigma because she did move from that small town. She moved to, um, from rural Johnston County, first to Raleigh, North Carolina, which was like the capital of North Carolina, bigger city. And then from there, she eventually migrated to DC. And, but even with that, the story of how or why she left was never passed out. Like, I don't know. What was communicated though, um, more so through actions or snide comments was shrink yourself, um, be invisible. Children were to be seen and not heard. Um, and I would say more cruelly, the map that I was given was that love hurts, right? Like my earliest uh, memories is all around um, really containers of violence. And um, my dad was an expert rifleman and um, he suffered immense PTSD from his time in Vietnam. Um, like I can remember being, you know, eight. And if you startled him from sleep, he would literally roll over and get into position issue. Um, that's how he came awake. And so, you know, even though he worked every day, every weekday for 32 years, um, he was a functioning alcoholic. And by when he got off work, you know, Friday evenings at four, literally by five, five thirty, he was stone cold drunk. And so he took out the horrors of Vietnam in a bottle or on my mom's body. And then my mom, in turn, she hid her pain and took out her frustrations on my brother and I's body, right? And so you just had this cycle. Um, 
you know, and that, that was my map. It was to, to try to exist as small as possible so that you were not in the way, so that you were not blamed for things. Um, you kept your head down. You stayed in place. I know you've written about this, but you, you've talked about in your writing having a, a clear sense that you were going to get the hell out of this. You were, you were going to leave this far, far behind. So I want to ask you about a moment of rupture with this map and when it was that you can recall the clarity of leaving that world behind, that you had the agency to leave it behind, to step through to the other side. And was it something you chose or did something happen? Um, I think it was probably a little of both, you know, honestly about it. So I, um, when I reflect on that, I honestly have just felt out of place my whole life. I have accepted being, you know, the weird one. And like you said, I, I did, I dreamed a lot of escape. I planned my escape at 17 when I got ready to go to college, I had my own vehicle. And so my mom and dad weren't planning to take me to that big day. And I remember um, I had a Plymouth Horizon and I had packed everything that was important to me in my car. Like my intention was when I left, to go to Vanderbilt, I would never return to North Carolina. I had no intention. I literally had planned to just kind of cut myself off from everything and start anew. And so I worked really hard in high school, had great you know, grades to get a scholarship. And so education was how I planned my escape from that. But even before that, I've always been a person who loved big cities. Like I, I felt like I didn't belong in a rural town. And maybe that's because I was birthed in Washington, D.C. I don't know if birth origin place, I'm into that. But as a teenager, whenever I needed to escape home or escape friends or escape, escape a boyfriend, I would literally drive 50 miles up to the Raleigh Durham Airport and sit in the um, you know, waiting parking lot area and just stare at the lights. Oh. And to this day, I am a person that comes alive with big cities. I need the energy of big cities. Um, I feel it crinkle across my neck and down my spine. And it does not matter what city. I am not partial. Driving into a city and seeing the skyline, I open. And so cities for me has been a rupture. It's a place where I can fall through, right? So I had that. But then I also was a child from... You know, as early as for that, I could see things, I could feel things, things in realms that I didn't realize other people weren't seeing what I could see. And, you know, if I made mention of it um, aloud, my mom would dismiss it as me lying or mm -hmm. I read a lot. And so it was, oh, you're living in your books, she would say quite often. And so I learned to keep quiet. But I also believe that, you know, now we would say it was a thin veil. Mm. that I was seeing through. But that in itself was a rupture to let me know that the world as I was experiencing it wasn't the only world. There was something bigger out there. And so I just kept really biding my time, but I have always been ready for the unknown. Oh, it's so profound because it's, um, I was just speaking to a friend about this, about the trap doors in life. You know, where you're just, you're walking along, you think you know what's happening, and then boom, you just drop into this other, bigger, wilder 
reality that feels like the stuff of books. It feels like the stuff of fantasy novels. And yet, you know, as you were describing your experience of being in the big city, I have that same same love of, you know, and again, it's like, I don't know if it's because I, I grew up in Madrid, but there's just this sense of infinite possibility and potentiality and um, the sensation of being held by the pulse and close proximity of so many people where you can still be alone, but you can be alone together. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's so nourishing. So um, I'm with you in your love of that. But I love this description of the ruptures as trapdoors that revealed themselves to you and revealed a more to you. And I, I want to ask you about love because you write so beautifully about love. And yet, I mean, you know, our culture has just completely neutered love or relegated it to just, you know, Disney or Hallmark romance, uh, rom-coms, you know, like it's like, that's basically how we understand love. Um, But the way that you write about love is love as a life force or as a synonym or replacement for how a lot of people would conceptualize divinity. And given that you had such an absence of this love in your first map. How did you begin to reorient toward a more expansive view of love? When did that begin to happen? And can you describe when you recognized that, that these trapdoors were leading you to love, a love that you hadn't experienced growing up? Such a beautiful question. You know, I I was hell on wheels. I was mean. I was mad. I was everything angry and um i i mean even i was a christian i was in the church but i don't think i wanted to be if i can be quite honest like i for a long time i have thought about being a christian and i've thought about myself as um a child of africa and even knowing that you know christianity has its roots in africa that existed long before enslavers perverted what we experience in American Christianity. But I wondered for myself as a child of Africa, were my descendants Muslim? Were they, you know, did we worship Orisha? Um, were we shamans? Were we healers? Um, did we participate in African traditional religion? And I've wondered, you know, if Christianity hadn't been forced upon my family during enslavement, would I have chosen to be Christian? And um, I think choice is such a sacred, holy, powerful force, force, right? And so I had to ask myself, you know, now that I can choose, do I want to be anything other than who I am? Because if I'm honest about it, the... G-O-D, that most preachers presented as I was growing up, he was an enforcer. He was mean. He was a he, right? There was no other pronoun used or whatever, but it was all, literally, everything was centered around this idea of hell and eternal conscious torment. And so ultimately what was keeping me rooted in Christianity was the idea of going to hell and not wanting to go to hell. Right. And so I had to follow all these rules to not go to hell. And so what happened for me was when I finally, finally encountered God as love, 
when God, who you're right, I do, I prefer love because I believe that there are, that God is the ground of all being and that um, in God resides both masculine and feminine, that all of the whole exists in God. And so while I honor the divine father, I also honor the sacred feminine and the sacred mother, holy mother. And so I feel like love is the word that can encapsulate all of that without having to like get caught up in the, all the nuances and stuff. I'm not here for the games and the language and semantics. Love is the force that matters. And that's the energy that I want to participate in because I believe that love is more for something than against. And so I orient towards love because of that. But how I got there was love really inviting me to hand to them everything that I had up to that point believed to be true about God. Mm. And that Mm. love would sift all of those things that I had believed to be true and would hand back to me what was true. And in the process of that, um, along with those belief, the belief system of it, what love really handed back to me was I matter, people matter. More than my beliefs, um, more than the idea of hell, more than the need to be right, more than the need to be certain, more than dogma and all of this, people matter. And people, you know, I mean, there is no love without people because love points itself towards someone else. It's relational, you know? And so I I can't dance with anything other than, than love. And that points me towards creation, all of it, all sentient beings, right? And, um, and so for me, what has kept me rooted, I'm still not hung up on labels. It doesn't have to be any, anything of that, but it was the day literally that I went from being able to say, yes, Jesus loved me to actually having experienced God or love, the force of love, really, truly loving me, like felt the sensation of love coursing through my entire body. And, you know, there was indeed a singular moment in early 2000s where that happened for me that I could point to. But what has since occurred from that singular moment is a moment every day where I choose, again, that sacred act, I choose to wake up, put my ass on a mat, turn my face upward towards love and open my hands and open my heart and surrender all of myself and all of my ideas and say, Love flow to me, love flow in me, love flow through me. And then I get my ass up off that mat with the intentionality to participate in the dance of love every day. And whether that's encountering people or a nature walk or doing nothing but having three glasses of wine and watching Netflix, (laughs) it is still a conscious participation with love every day of how I move and live and have my being. And I think that changed him. Yeah. It's so beautiful because as I'm listening to you speak, it's like the the invitation of love is to unknow the dysfunctional versions of love that we've known. Yes. To to let go of the small stories or beliefs or the ways in which we attach our worth. And I wanted to ask you about this because you and I met rather faith, faithfully at a time of real loss and upheaval in my life. Like I was just 
totally fucking shattered, <laughs> both personally and with professional heartache and institutional heartache. And during that shattering, you remained such a tender, uh, holding voice of compassion and caring, but also with the like, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi level, like capacity to truth tell over the lies that I was prone to want to believe in that, in that place of vulnerability. And what you called me to again and again was to differentiate my worth as inherent from the dysfunction that I had or was experiencing. And it seems like in seasons of deep unknowing and, you know, geez, I'm still totally here, right? <laughs> in a different way, different, different circumstances, but in seasons of, of unknowing, of deep uncertainty, we become so vulnerable when we can't feel the ground beneath our feet and we begin casting our worth out almost to like ease the discomfort. So we toss it out to like achievement or plans or people or worse. We believe that there is something wrong with us because we couldn't stay in the dysfunctional, you know, relationship or institution. And you write about rooting down into love as touching into that freedom you were just speaking of that freedom that's more than those stories. And I want to ask, how does love reveal that addiction of safety that we feel in small containers or relationships that are trying to keep us small? Yeah. You know, Brie, I, I believe that love is faithful to itself. And I honestly believe that the whole of love is to partner with us in our healing, our alignment, and our transformation. Right, that that is its purpose is to guide us into our transformation, and to that end, I believe that love aims its fury at everything that opposes love's kind, any of the barriers, our addictions, our numbing, our unconscious programs of happiness, our small containers, our biases, self hatred, recrimination, everything that we have learned to use as crutches, every outward facing thing that we rely on to tell us that we're loved, um, that becomes addictive and, and needy. Um, I think love aims its very at that. And, and I think because love is inviting us to let go of, of these attachments, right? It never forces, but the fire of love is there to purify. And it's there to burn away the dross that muddies our own embodiment of divine love. And so I have to get to a place where I am at home in myself, right? That I understand that in the core of my being, you, you talked about those stories that we tell ourselves and those small narratives. And all of those things are at odds with the truth of my being. And so in inside of each one of us, good, bad, and ugly, is an innocent wholeness that exists. And what happens, I, I honestly believe that um, when babies come into this realm, they're still holding on to that holy innocence, to the truth. It's so pure, the things they say and reveal and, and all of that. And then what happens over time with life is life just begins to beat the shit out of us. Yeah. And what we do is we haven't been taught the skills to trust that place of love within us. And so what we do is we learn outward facing skills 
where we pick up things to defend ourselves, to protect our wounded child, you know, um, to keep us safe. And a lot of those are handicapped, you know. Um, a lot of it is, you know, we pick up fear, we pick up manipulation, we pick up control, we pick up shame. Um, that can be a cloak and we can hide behind. We pick up narratives, you know. We create other worlds to live in, to drop into, which is dissociation. But for a lot of people who live in traumatic situations, dissociation protects them. You know, it protects them from themselves and from other people. And so things that we think are bad um, or whatever, all these things are there. But I think the difference is, particularly if you come from a Christian tradition, the way most Christianity has taught us is we are to cut off everything bad. Like all of these things are the ways of the flesh and we are to cut them off. And I do not believe that love wants us to fragment or cut off anything. I believe that what love does is love takes everything and it alchemizes it for our good, for wholeness. But it does not cut off. Nothing is ever wasted. Nothing, you know. And so that's what I, I just think that. But I think what happens is because of self-help and all of that, we always think it's something that we have to do. Like we got to go. We got to. And no shade on affirmations, right? I'm here for them. I do them. But we feel like we got to do all this work. We got to work it up. And we make it about effort instead of receptivity. Mm. There is something. And, you know, we're both mamas. We've had babies. And um, while you bring your whole self to nine months of pregnancy, most of what's happening in the womb, you have no control over and you're not doing anything, Right. You're going to eat healthy. You're going to, you know, exercise. You're going to do because there's some intention that you're participating. But most of that you're not doing. You are receiving what is being done unto you. And this, I believe, is the kiss of love that partners with the fury of love. Mm. And so while we learn to sit down on our mat and receive love's kiss, because you can't kiss and talk at the same time, right? Not with a really good kiss. You just have to give yourself into that kiss, right? Yes, you and do. So <laughs> you have to give yourself into it. And so we have to sit and receive. And as we are receiving, love does the work. Love transforms, love alchemizes, mm. you know? And so that this is the dance, the participation, the both and of it. You're kicking my ass right now, Felicia. <laughs> like, it's just... I, I, I knew this was going to be church. I just didn't know how much it was going to be church because, you know, I'm sitting here in a season where I feel like the, to use your language, the fury of love has been pointed at my own pride in wanting to be and do it all on my own. You know, and and I've been reflecting on this, thinking about the fact that it's like, I don't know if it's because I grew up as a missionary kid where I had to like do a song and dance to like help provide support for my family. And so there was this deep wound of resentment that I carried of like, I will never, ever ask for help. I will never, ever put myself in a position of dependency where I need other people's support. And yet... <laughs> God damn it. Here I am as a musician and podcaster being like, please give to my Patreon page. I need to keep the lights on. And I hate it. I hate it so much. And yet someone challenged me recently on this very topic and said, that is you being prideful and selfish because you're keeping us from getting to participate with you. Like it is actually participatory. But I do think 
that there's something about the way that we've industrialized creativity where it has to be justified by making money or justified by self-sufficiency, that we think there's something wrong with us when we have to lean on or want to experiment with these alternative communal models of support. And so here I am receiving and hearing your words. And what is it that is so difficult for us in that like receptivity, as you named? Because I feel like, at least among my circle of friends, when it comes to the giving side, and the participatory side, we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, give 100%, 100%. But when it comes to receiving, we're like, oh, <laughs> like that's so much harder. So, so how is fear, how is fear or pride at play in keeping us locked away from receiving the support that could unlock that creative potential? That as you said, if we're all connected, then whatever creativity I offer is communal anyway. So what's going on here? What's happening? I I do think, honestly, though, some of this is because we live in a society overrun by capitalism, right? Yeah. Part of it is we have this language of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman, which is a effing lie because nobody is self-made, right? Somebody helps someone. You're either standing on generational wealth or a network opportunity where someone opened a door or something no one is self-made. And um, I will say this, my son and I, who he is also an artist, so he does a lot of music things on his own and that, and his music is great. I always tell him, like, sometimes I'm listening to some other, you know, more well-known artists. I'm like, dang, Jay, your music sounds so much better than that, you know? And of course, he's blowing me off because I'm mom and he feels like that's what mom's supposed to say, but um, I still like to bob my head. And so I know good music when I hear it. And, but we were talking about this because I think when he initially got into music, it was, let me get on YouTube, you know, let me be on Spotify, let me do this kind of thing so that it will fit this genre to get in, to get noticed and all of that. And I do think there is something in the heart of us. We want to be known. We want to be appreciated. And we want our creativity to be valued and respected. There is, you know, I have texted you when I'm not getting responses or something like, Bree, I wrote this. Can you just read it? And, you know, like, yes. Um, so as much as we say we don't, there is still something inside of us that do. And I can remember when I wrote my book, I self-published because at the time that I wrote it, it was unlike now where as a Christian publishers would publish curse words. And I am, um, I agree with Brene Brown. I think that cussing and prayer are not mutually exclusive things. And you were the both from me. And, um, and so when I wrote my book, I had language in it. And I felt like I did not want to leave the language out of the book because the language was true to who I am, right? Mm -hmm. So Christian publishers weren't interested in the book with language at that time. And secular publishers weren't interested in Christian language. So I just opted to self-publish. But even as a self-published artist, I got into tracking how many books I was selling each month and what I could do to market and all of that. And I remember one time being really bummed because at that point I'd only sold not even quite enough books to have broken even on what I spent to get the book into the world. And I was taking a walk one day, musing, bummed, and I really felt like I got invited into this conversation with spirit. And it was, what are your motivations? What is your why behind doing this? 
And my response back was, I had another walk. Felt like spirit has said to me, um, I need you to release your book into the earth. Like it's time. And I said, okay. And so it was like, was your yes to participate in this dance of love with me in this creative expression? Or was your yes because you wanted to sell a whole bunch of books and get known? Can you trust in releasing your gift into the earth that the people that need what you have will receive it? Can you trust the parallel of journeys that in the moment of time that it is important for them to discover Bree Stoner's amazing artistry, her words, and her songs, that that song is going to land on that person's lap? Can you trust that? You know, or do you want to push and be ambitious and self-promote and make your way? And I think the reason why that fear keeps us locked away is because fear works. And if it didn't, people wouldn't recognize it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we, you know, maybe because of social media, because of technological advances, I'm not sure. But in our society, the base of it is a society that is caught up in image, and is caught up in the appearance of something and in comparison and competing for likes and shares. And so too many of us get trapped in that familiar chatter of frustration and judgment and having to explain ourselves, you know, and in that regard, we really become our own prison wardens, not even realizing that we, we are the key to freedom. Not that we have a key. We are the key to freedom. We are. We are vast, but so many of us are scared of our vastness. And so what we do is we feel like we have to dumb ourselves down, shrink ourselves, or to explain to a damn man why I want to have a video smoking an herbal cigarette. (laughs) Did you appreciate it? My ass is grown. If I want to kiss on a video or smoke an herbal cigarette, I can do this without needing to explain myself. Yes, Felicia. That is right. We hear that, oh, we're going to lose support. We're going to lose. And so we have to we have to explain, you know? And I earn that. I earn that ass calling because it is true. I, and you know, for those of you who don't have a clue what we're talking about, Felicia (laughs) just called my ass out because on social media, I get called out on the stupidest shit all the time. And we talk, and Felicia and I talk about this a lot. It's like the... The things that, uh, you know, that a man would never get called out on or never get messaged on, DM'd about, the the ways in which I feel like I have to constantly either apologize or explain myself is exhausting. And yeah, the invitation to move past that is always a step into our own freedom because what we're saying in those moments is, I trust me. So I trust me and I trust the sovereignty of my decisions. So I no longer have to explain myself to you all the time. And as you were speaking about this experience of, of you know, what am I in this for? You know, one of the things that I've joked about since taking on this venture just over eight months ago, I have to remind myself that it hasn't even been a full year since I started this crazy. So it's like, okay, calm down. But you know, I make a joke now where I'm like, I've never been more alive. I've never felt more like myself. And I'm perpetually one to two months away from being broke. Like I'm always like right there. I think that lead time has gotten shorter. Now it's like, I'm pretty much like three weeks away from being broke. It's like, that's the new norm. But here's the deal. Here's what I hear you saying. 
what am I in this for? My dream in starting this was to be able to live in the flow of creativity, to actually get by by being a maker. And being a maker in my own sovereignty, not to be hired as a creative director for one more organization. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just that I felt this hunger to be my own sovereign creator and to express myself in these different ways. So if that was the dream, then hang on, I'm living it. Even though I am always like, oh my God, three weeks away, like, am I gonna make it? What you're saying is, if I am fully present, then I can stop looking ahead three weeks and panicking because if I am in the present moment, I have what I need here and now. And this is the only moment that matters. It's the only moment that's real. It is the only moment. And and here's the thing too, Brie. If I am being authentic and true to my yes, to love's invitation, I am going to trust in the kindness and the goodness of love that I will have what I need when I need it. And if I don't, if I don't, I am still going to trust that this is going to work out. I had to do that because I needed to edit it because what happens, particularly coming from a Christian paradigm, we have this idea of God as genie Mm -hmm. that we can say three prayers, rub the lamp, fast two hours and whatever we need will manifest, right? And that is not how love works. That's not how life works. And I I used to believe that because I had embraced this idea of love and this idea of freedom, that it would protect my kids from harm, that my kids would do all the right things, say all the right things. And at the end of the day, what love showed me was that I still, in some ways, had a picture in my head, even in taking the leap into freedom and The reason why a lot of people don't leap into freedom is because freedom is scary as hell. There are no walls. There are no boundaries there. It is scary. You are full on out there and you do not know what is out in the unknown. And we have been equipped to need the boundaries of certainty. But I believed that if I gave myself wholly to love, that it would be like this bubble right? That would protect my kids. It would protect Doug and I. It would it would protect us. And life would be just rosy inside of this bubble of love. And that's a lie. That's a lie. That is not how life happens. But what it means inside of freedom, even with all of its boundarylessness, it still means that I am tethered. I am tethered to a sure thing. And for me, this is why I still believe deeply in incarnate love. Um, is because I know that I have tasted and seen a love that keeps, a love that comforts, a love that suffers with, a love that is unconditional. It is not trying to force me to be or do or say anything that I don't want. And it will consent to whatever I want at the time, right? And so this the freedom of love to do that is why I still keep going. I think that that is the thing that what has to happen inside of that, where I was going with that is that it's easy to say, oh, I love, but then you're still trying to make your picture of what you think that's supposed to look like and be like happen instead of just yielding open-handedly and participating with life as it happens. And we can't, our pictures are going to be different. Life is going to be different. You know, we cannot control every factor of it. 
And this is the part that's like, you know, talk about unknowing. It's the every creative, and you know that I always say, if you're a human, you're a creative because you're creating with your choices, right? So everybody listening, you're an artist too. So as artists, when we say yes to pouring ourselves out in a creative venture, what we are doing is releasing outcome. But you're right to say, Felicia, that we snap back and we kind of, we say, yes, I release outcome also though, Side side note, asterisk, <laughs> you know, like fine print line. But I really want it to happen this way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I really thought by now, like <laughs> I thought for sure eight months in things would not be this scary, you know. <laughs> so here's what I want to ask you because you just talked about something that I think listeners are really going to appreciate. That I am feeling myself appreciate. Which you said you, there's a tether, there's something that can anchor you in the midst of not knowing. And you write beautifully about belonging. And you say, to find my way home to myself, I have to find my way home to love. To establish home in the world, I must first establish home in myself. And I know, you know, you hear stuff like this and our ears gloss over it because love yourself or self-love is such an exhausted concept. But recently... Even in this past week, I had this realization. I was up on one of my sleepless nights and in the land of what the fuckery and being like, just seriously, how are we going to get by? Um, and I had this sense of recognition of I'm it. I am all I have. And I don't mean that in a lonely way or in a, in a negative way. Um, but I mean it as like, this is the ultimate foundational relationship. And so... If we take the religious idea or Christian idea of God as love or love God as yourself and love your neighbor as yourself, I can flip that now and say, my relationship to myself is how I relate to everyone and everything. And it's difficult to put this into words because it's still so fresh for me, but it felt like a homecoming because I realized that if I shift how I talk to myself, if I shift this core inner relationship that I have then love can flow out of me and to me because there's no end to the amount of creativity that I can have. There's no limit to the amount of support that I can receive, which is always the hard part for me. And I'm just wondering if this makes sense in creative language because it's like as we create with our choices, with what we do vocationally or otherwise, as we write the story of our lives, this core foundation, how we speak to ourselves, how we relate to ourselves feels so important and I want to ask you, is this what you meant by establishing home in ourselves? Or how can we, is this part of the anchor that you were just referencing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I just have to say where you nailed it, I I know that I'm, I'm going to listen to this podcast two or three times just to hear that over and over again. Um, you nailed it. I honestly, honestly believe that there's the hero's journey and then there is the journey home to love. Right. And I had come to a place in my life where in my journeying with love and journeying home to love, it became really easy to love my spirit and my soul. Like I would have these days every day where I spent at least 30 minutes, sometimes an hour. And what I call soaking prayer, because I come from a charismatic background, which Everything Catholic was demonic. And so you couldn't say that it was contemplative prayer or contemplation. We had to rename it. 
And so it was called soaking prayer, but essentially what you were doing was spending hours just allowing yourself to be in the presence of divine love, right? And you're not talking, you're not, it's totally apophotic. So, you know, you're just literally being there, allowing love to wash over you. And in those times, and this is really what birthed a lot of my book was, um, what I found that happened to me during those times was, it was like surgery. And I used to get mad at myself when I first started because I would often fall asleep during those times. And, and then one day spirit said to me, when you go to a hospital to have surgery, what is one of the first things they do? And I was like, oh, they give you anesthesia. Oh, They put you to sleep so that you cannot resist or oppose or work against what the doctors are doing to bring healing. And so in those places of quiet, um, you know, I just have some instrumental music playing or whatever. I literally just lay down on my yoga mat, arms outstretched, and just here I am, love, to receive what you have for me. And um, I'm open and welcome to receive love today, you know, that. And what would happen is all of that stuff, all the pain, all the abandonment, the rejection, the fear, the manipulation, all of it, love was working on it. Love was alchemizing it, was transforming it. And I did not really even know the fullness of what was going on. I honestly feel like I woke up one day and I was different, like where I used to be mean and snap at my kids and yell at them and smack them and all of this or cut somebody out or, you know, I'm a mama bear. Like that mama bear part of me exists. It still exists. Even in the way I love is hard. I'm not a, a pansy, you know, on my pinky toes kind of person. That's not my personality, but there was a softening, a tenderizing that happened. And I could tell I was different and Doug could notice and my kids could notice and it created an ease in how we were inside of that. And so my soul started being healed and my spirit was being healed, right? But I was still was neglecting my body because I had grown up in a Christian tradition where you slay the flesh, you cut off the flesh, you deny the flesh, you know, you pulverize it essentially. And one day spirit said to me, Felicia, I need you to learn to love your body the way you love your spirit and your soul. I didn't even have a fucking clue what to do with that. I didn't know. I know how to walk that out. What do you do? And so little by little, I started, um, you know, the journeys, the parallels happen in the time that it's supposed to happen. Things about nutrition, exercise, learning. Um, you know, we grew up in a, you ate bologna and vienna sausages and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you have Things like that as a diet every single day, it causes heart diseases, it causes cholesterol issues, high blood pressure. And so I began to learn the same way that Doug and I had to do with learning to parent differently. I started to learn how to treat my body differently. And so what I feel like in, in the answer to your question, Father Thomas Keating, who is so important to me, he once said that only by entering into union with love, or he said God, but I'm going to say love. Only by entering into union with love can we learn who or what self is. So I believe that some people come into love through learning to love themselves, through finding home in themselves. They have to let go of that shit. And sometimes it almost feels, I'm watching this a little bit with one of my kids, actually, um, because she was raised with parents who were pastors and we had our rules and stuff. 
And so now what's happening is she is pulling way to the other extreme of all the rules. And it's all about her. It's all about her. And right now at this point in her, her life, it needs to be all about her because she is learning how to establish home in herself. She is learning how to finally, for the first time ever in her life, put herself first. And I'm here for it. I'm here for the pole dancing. I'm here for the take a picture, doing twerking. And I am here. I'd be like, yes, girl, live. Yes. Cheering <laughs> yes. her, her on all the way. Like, go for it. However you need to express yourself and find yourself, live. I am here to see you live. Because I know that as the pendulum has swung that way, what will happen is it will swing back into an equilibrium. And in that equilibrium, you learn that it's not just all about me loving myself and finding home in myself. I find home in myself as a place of homeostasis, a centering. And then from this place now, I can have a relationship with a divine something. I can have a relationship with other sentient beings. I can have an authentic relationship with creation. And I'm not needing anything from any of those people or things. I'm not looking outward for their affirmation of my worth or my significance or any type of validation because I am centered in myself. I know that the ground of all being, that love exists within me. And anytime I need to feel that love, I can burrow within, quiet myself down, hold my hands open and say, love, I am ready. I am open and welcome to receive love. Love, I am here for what you have today. And I can sense the presence of that love loving me as I open myself to it. And so I really think that that is how we begin to establish home in ourselves. And that's the anchor, right? And so I feel that in my love relationship with my husband, like we, we are partners. We have so much freedom, but home is not a place for me. Home exists in people. Home is, home is Doug, you know? So he is where I run to. Home is love for me. Divine love, capital L. Love is where I run to. That is the place that I am most safe. Home is my friends, my girlfriends. You are where I run to. You see me, right? And so I know that, like, I cannot share my woo with everybody, but I can tell you my crazy shit, and you'd be like, "Yes, girl, I got you." <laughs> you know <laughs> it. <laughs> yes, I got you. Been there, done that. I got you. Wait, let me tell you mine. <laughs> That's home. That is home. Yeah, this makes me cry. It makes me cry because it's interesting. I, I don't know if I've shared this story before, but um. I'm thinking of a movie with Jodie Foster, Contact, and the aliens, they like send this very specific blueprint to make a ship so that she can go out and meet them. And they make the, the ship, but they make the ship and they're like, man, these stupid aliens, they forgot to add a chair with like a harness, you know? So then they build a chair with a harness, even though it wasn't in the blueprint, and Jodie Foster, or whatever the character's name is that Jodie Foster plays, she gets in the chair, she she puts the harness on, and the alien ship takes off, but it's, like, jarring, and she's just like, you know, like, really, really hard. And then all of a sudden she notices her, her necklace is just kind of slowly floating, 
And so she unharnesses, unbuckles the harness, and she's totally fine. She's just floating in perfect ease and comfort in the center of the ship. And it's the fact that it's like, you know, I think about that all the time because it's the resistance to the journey of love or to the fullness of love that actually makes the waves of discomfort in my own life. And yet I have compassion for that resistance because I almost need to feel that jarring resistance to see and recognize that it's there, that it's happening. And in many ways, I think that this particular season of challenge in my own life as a creative is revealing a deeper truth of my self-worth that I I probably couldn't have experienced with any less friction. (laughs) Like I just needed all of that hardcore friction nonstop back to back to be able to say, okay, I am meeting myself here and I know I am enough. And in a world that seeks to turn our creativity into a product with a number on it or streams or followers or whatever, I can stand outside of that. I can trust in my own worth as a creative. And um, that does feel like home. It does. The way you're describing it feels like such a a homecoming. And um, I want to follow up with a question about the ease that you described in that freedom because I want to ask about control and freedom when it comes to love and how it applies to the creative process. But here's one of my all-time favorite lines that you've ever written or ever said to me. Like it literally, it's like every time I come across it, I'm like, damn, it's so good. So you said this to me when we first met and I've never forgotten it. And you've written about it. You say, love is the structure in which freedom is governed. Just as the banks of a river provide the boundaries that contain the water in the river, love becomes the boundaries that contain our freedom. I mean, this was mind-blowing to me when you first shared it. It still is. Um, In the context of when we first discussed it, we were talking about parenting. And you mentioned this, that this is how you parent, or this is how you and Doug have sought to be parents. But I wonder if you can break this definition of love down and how you talk about the boundaries and how it pertains to to us as creatives, to us as wanting to be courageous creatives in this life. I, I think first and foremost, particularly as a creative, it is important to reconcile that you are your own unique expression of divine love. And your creativity is a vehicle of that expression. And in that regard, it is an offering, right? It is as sacred as anything that I would put on my ofrenda and burn and offer up to the ancestors or to God. Um, It is an offering. And whether it is consumed fully by people or consumed privately just by you or whether it leads to something big or not, it is an offering. And no act of love is small in itself, right? And so that your creative expression is a love that has cosmic influence. Hmm. Whether you as the creator of that creation see the end result of that influence or not. And so when I say love is the structure in which freedom is governed and not spilling over the banks or that even when it does, you adjust to it, 
for me, most of that is about trust, right? Um, my mom just passed away in February. And so I was home leading up to her, her death and it put me in contact with family members. And I will be the first to admit that I do not have great ex- relationships with extended family beyond my kids. And I will own that very honestly. And those are a lot, again, back to my choices. But while I was home, my brother and I had this moment where my brother said, can I ask you a question? And he said, if, if I ask you this question, will you answer honestly? And I said, yes. And he said, why do you hate the family so much? Ooh. And I like scoffed, right? And I said, hate is a strong word, but I never answered the question. And so later I was recounting to my husband and my kids about my brother's question. And I explained to them that part of the reason why I did not answer the question was because I am not in relationship with my brother, right? So we don't have a bridge of emotional or relational capital for me to actually explain how I got to where I am and the decisions that I made for myself. Mm -hmm. I also did not feel like I owed him that explanation because there is no knowing. Mm -hmm. And, And anything that I would have really tried to say could have possibly caused more of a disconnect or offense. And so I just better left unsaid. And so I opted not to say anything. And a few days later, I was recounting that story to my mother's sister. We were um, in my mom's hospice room. And she said to me, yeah, why do you hate the family so much? And I looked at her and I, and I said the same thing that I said to my brother. And I said, this is my definition of love. I said, love is self-giving. Love is mutual. There's mutuality. There is reciprocity. Love is other-centered. And love will, to the deepest of its ability, empty itself. It is canonic, right? It will empty itself for another in their expression of love. That's what love looks like to me. And I said, I have always been forced to hug certain uh, family members that were not safe for me or my person. I have been forced to call certain family members who didn't give a damn about me. And I finally reached a place in my own healing where I decided that I only wanted to be in relationship with people who wanted to be in relationship with me. And one of the ways that I tested this was if I don't call you for years, not just days or weeks or months, but for years, and you never call me or wonder about me or whatever, we are probably not really in a relationship. There is no mutuality. There is no reciprocity. There is no self-giving. Others. There's nothing here. That is not the definition of relationship. Relationship goes two ways, right? And so when we talk about relationship, am I known? Do I? What's your favorite color? What do you like to eat? What do you dream about? So love becomes the structure that freedom is governed because we are all free. You're free to do whatever the hell you want to do to the best of what you want to do it, right? We all can. We can do that. But 
how do we govern ourselves then? Do we just become anarchists? No. Love becomes the structure that governs our freedom. And what that looks like inside of relationship is you matter to me. I am going to consider you and how I govern my freedom. And I might make a mess because I'm complex and I'm messy and we all are and we all fuck up. We all do. But when I fuck up, do I turn towards you to repair, to heal the damage? Is there enough relational capital for you to step inside my shit with me and be like, Felicia, you are being messy right now, right? And I am going to be here not to control you, manipulate you, dominate you, even tell you what to do. But I am going to be here with you inside this shack of shit until you open your heart enough to receive love in a way that will transform and help guide you out. Okay? And I'm just going to point out to you that like you have stepped over the boundary of love into some messy shit. <laughs> and I need you to come back, right? And so this is how I talk to the kids because I have a high capacity of eight energy, you know, Enneagram language, which means that I can easily do control. Like if you make me afraid, I'm going to step in and run shit. That's just how I am. And so I tell my kids that all adults now, they manage their own lives. But when I get afraid, my first inclination is not to heal, it is to control, right? It is to come in and run roughshod. And so I have to be honest about when I am feeling afraid. And even in that, then what happens is I allow love to govern my freedom so I don't step over the line of where I end and they begin. You know, same with Doug, same with the kids, same with friendly relationships, there is a line. But I also know that because I am an eight, I love really hard and I go after injustice really, really hard, right? And so I have to say to my friends, you are welcome inside of that same boundary to say to me, you know, your love is making me uncomfortable. And so this is, this is freedom in a way that it can be attractive and not make people afraid. And so when that spills over the banks, it soaks into each other. We are interconnected. There's a blurring that happens, but we have to know how to dance inside of that in a way that we give each other the freedom of unconditional acceptance. I manage me, you manage you. I'm reflecting on how powerful that relational truth is for our vocational or even just like our lives, period, how we like to plan and think and measure our lives by a storyline that we've written. <laughs> I mean, when you said, Felicia, when you said, like, when I am afraid I go to control, I'm like, pretty sure every human listening could say, yup, <laughs> like, that's also me. Um, I certainly did. I felt that. I felt that sense of like, yep, I do that. When I'm afraid, I go to control. And here's what control does. Control narrows the flow of love and creativity. It also siphons the flow. It sometimes shuts it all the way off because being in the flow of love or creativity is scary as hell because it's uncontrolled and it's unpredictable. And that river is going to take us in 
paths and, and move in ways that we can't anticipate or, or predict or be certain about, you know? It's like, as I see myself going to the edge of the waterfall right now, I'm like, yep. <laughs> How about we just shut this river off? You know, it's like, I just want to, I just want to shut down. And yet what I hear you saying is that the more I can relax into this as an expression of freedom, love's freedom or creativity's freedom, the more I can trust that I will be held by the banks of that love and also that I will flow in unexpected creative ways with other rivers and become tributaries and flow into oceans of possibility because you've reminded me of that countless times in our friendship. But even in, as I sit here ref and reflect on like the last several months, it's, there have been so many unexpected collaborations that have happened. I mean, I'm talking like, hey, uh, my bandmate Luke, I was like, Luke, hey, do you think we could, uh, could you hold my iPhone and can we do like a, we're just going to do like a zero budget music video? And yeah, 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 totally. And then he's like, hey, I'll do you one better. Like I actually have a friend who's a photographer. I think he might be into just shooting it for you if you'd be interested in that. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. And so yeah, to think about this line that love is the structure in which freedom is governed um, and to see ourselves as creatives, as having an opportunity to soften into that flow or harden against it by our choices to not move into control when we're afraid, but to move into trust. That's a hell of an invitation. That's it. I mean, if you, if I can own my vastness, right? And I, I told you this, you know, we had a conversation a couple of summers ago about something that came up. If, if I can own my treasure, I'm not denying that God has given me a treasure, right? I have a treasure. I am, I am vast. And when the point is not to just create for the sake of productivity, to be known commercially or to make money or whatever, but right. this is my participation with love. This is how I express the vastness that is within me. Then inside of this offering, I am introducing it into the river of life and allowing it to go where it goes. And as you just said, it, it flows into different, into the ocean of possibility. I love that, Brie. It definitely flows into the ocean of possibility. And so many things open up for us without us having to try to control it and, you know, hurt it some places. I know that it has happened with me. I've seen it happen with others. Hmm. So I want to... I mean, I, I kind of selfishly, I'm like, let's just keep going for another hour. But I, I want to wrap up by asking you about the flow of love in your life right now and how you are writing with love, writing toward love. What are you having to or are wanting to practice unknowing about these days? <sighs> you know, even my own ideas of love. Um I don't ever want to reach the bottom of mystery. I want to remain conscious and open enough to be surprised and to remain in awe of creation and people. I, I want to unknow suspicion and mistrust because it is easy for me. Yeah, I just want to keep myself alert enough to be able to hear the song of love over our world, over people, over myself. And I want to unknow all the ways that I damned up the cords of that. Wow. Felicia, you are 
You are one of the most loving human beings that I have the privilege of knowing. And um, and invite me in gentle and ass-kicking ways <laughs> that I need to let go of that controlling part of myself, to actually to just enjoy this this ride, this river as as an experiential freedom of expression. And I just want to thank you so much for your friendship, but thank you so much for being on the show today. I am totally cheering you on all the way. I am so in awe of you, Brie, and just um, everything that you put out. I told you I'm such a fangirl. I believe so wholeheartedly in you. I'm looking forward to the days when you can say this was just a beginning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're learning how to look up from the maps of certitudes, from the safety of statements, of black and white beliefs, and trust falling into our own bodies, into our own experience of love as makers, which is a continual trust fall. It's true. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. I loved it when Felicia said that love is faithful to itself and will guide us to healing and transformation, and that it points its fury to anything that gets in the way of that. That was pretty visceral, wasn't it? (laughs) And kind of a helpful reframe for any time we find ourselves going through the difficult process of growing. I mean, it's as if we forget that growing comes with pain, that, that just unfortunately kind of goes together. So if you find yourself in the deep discomfort of unknowing and not being sure, welcome. This means you're alive. It means you're growing. And if you aren't uncomfortable, maybe you need to trust fall your way further out of the boundaries of your own beliefs and certitudes and statements that hold you back from what could be. Think about it. Second piece of True North wisdom, love doesn't want to fragment or cut anything off, Felicia said. It alchemizes everything and nothing is wasted. I loved this statement so much because it allows us to let go of the need to fix ourselves, (laughs) to make this situation cleaner, less messy, less confusing, less unsure. I picture the studio of a wild artist in the midst of creating you know you wouldn't walk in there and be like um i'm sorry sir um yes uh i realize you're picasso but do you do you see that you're making a mess with your paint here um would you mind please cleaning this up it's very disorderly so felicia says love uses everything especially the mess especially the pain the things that we want to cut off or the things that we don't want to see it all belongs you belong And every part of your creative process, also known as your life, belongs. Final piece of True North wisdom, freedom is scary as hell. Let that sink in. Because if you find yourself trembling inside at the vastness of possibility, isn't that where you'd rather be? As opposed to the safety of being certain and sure the comfort of knowing. I set off to make this podcast because I really do believe that unknowing is a spiritual path for the makers, not the monks. 
and, you know, nothing against the monks, but that, uh, that path is not for me. I want to be here, in this world. I want to be so fully here and fleshy and part of this beautiful, messy, intermingling reality that I can participate fully in this creative, unfolding story of life. I want to be courageous enough to create, to be a maker with those who are brave enough to build, those who are willing to risk everything and pouring themselves out in an offering, in an expression, by critiquing the bad, by creating what could be. And if you want that for yourself, I hope that this podcast has been an oasis, uh, a safe harbor, <laughs> a little retreat that you can come to on a regular basis to receive inspiration, to animate your own courage, to keep going, to hear me say you're not alone <laughs> in the terror of the trust fall of being a maker. I'm right there with you. So here at the close of season two, I want to invite you to join me and become a part of the unknowing community. By joining the unknowing community, you are essentially saying that you want to co-create this podcast with me. You want to make it possible for there to be future seasons. And in order to do that, you can click any of the links that are available in the show notes. You can either become a patron and there's all sorts of membership tiers, or you can give a tax deductible donation in any amount. I've already begun working on season three. It's going to be a good one. It's a topical exploration that I think you're really going to enjoy, but I cannot get there without your help. We have 82 patrons supporting Unknowing, and we're hoping to get to the number of 150 by or through season three, and only you can help make that happen. So I hope you'll consider it. That's it for today's episode and for season two of Unknowing. Stay tuned for a special bonus episode that will air next week, a conversation with my yoga instructors. It'll make you stretch in the best way. Did you, did you get the joke? Did you get it? Just making sure. Finally, in closing, these words by Rebecca Solnit. Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from where you yourself came from and where you will go.